Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by outdoorsman Don Thomas. Among many other things, he is the waterfowl editor for Strung Magazine. Please join us for our last interview of 2020 as we discuss a life well spent in the field and with the pen. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And do you need to find the perfect gift for the hard-to-buy-for fly angler on your list? Blaine Chocolate is offering online classes in January teaching folks how to tie one of his new patterns, the Changer Craw. The first class sold out in just a few days, so Blaine added another one. Space is limited, so don't delay. All the details are in the show notes. Now, on to the interview. Well, Don, welcome to the Articulate Fly. (laughs) Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I appreciate you carving out a little bit of time for me on what I'm sure is a chilly Montana morning. It is chilly but beautiful. It's uh, crystal clear and not much wind. It's actually just the kind of day I'd like to be outside, and I will be outside uh, later this afternoon and tomorrow. (laughs) But... uh, no, 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 no worries. I'm happy to spend the morning with you. Well, I appreciate it. And we have a tradition on the articulate fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Yeah, that's, that's a great, uh, that's a great starting point. You know, uh, I suppose, um, and uh, other people have made this comment with regard to other things about their lives. It's hard for me to remember a time when I wasn't fishing. Um, I, I kind of came out of the box uh, with a fishing rod in my hand, I guess. I, I think that anecdote that probably sticks best with me uh, relates to a time back in Massachusetts. I was actually born in Boston, although I haven't been back there in decades. And um, we lived in a, a little suburb. My dad was uh, still involved in medicine at Harvard. And there was a little pond near our house called Man's Pond. And actually, I Googled it the other day, uh, apropos of nothing, just to uh, walk down memory lane. And apparently, it's still there. A small pond, and I think it had some panfish in it. But, um, you know, my dad would take me down there sometimes, and uh, we would just fish, you know, bobbers, worms kind of thing. There was a little creek that came out of the pond. And uh, this creek was four feet wide at most. Uh, You could walk across it without getting your knees wet. And uh, one day my dad said, why don't you go down and see if there's any fish in the creek? And I did. And uh, again, I was not fly fishing uh, at the time. I was probably four or five years old. And uh, I got a bite on my worm and I hauled this fish in and I looked at it and I'd never seen anything like it. And I I said, Dad, I think I caught a trout. And uh, he came uh, humping down the bank and uh, we looked at this thing. I'll never forget those, you know, orange and purple spots. And he, he was very professorial and he kind of reared up and said, Don, you have caught a salvalinus. Uh, no, I can't, I can't believe I can't remember the scientific name for brook trout now. Fontanalis, salvalinus, fontanalis. And I said, well, I thought it was a trout. And he said, yeah, that, that, that is the proper Latin name for a brook trout. And he said, this is probably the only brook trout that has ever been caught in this creek. And I was, I was really proud of that fish. And uh, I, I'll never forget how beautiful it looked once I kind of got the, the dirt swiped off of it. And, 
Of course, there are a few fish uh, in North America or anywhere else that are more beautiful than brook trout. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so when did you get drawn to the dark side of fly fishing? Uh, you know, at, at an, uh, an early age, and uh, some of that's relative, of course, but this would be in the 1950s when, uh, you know, fly fishing was kind of a, uh, an odd thing. It, was, it, it wasn't the scene that it is now, and there were very few resources available. Um, my dad, who had a huge impact on me in many ways, including my development as an outdoor sportsman, grew up very poor in Texas uh, during the Depression. And, of course, he didn't know anything about fly fishing. He fished, but he fished for catfish and such because they needed to eat them. So he really didn't know much, but he just decided he was going to be a fly fisherman. And um, uh, I looked at this and said, well, this is kind of neat. So by the time we moved to Cooperstown, New York, which was in the mid-50s when I was, uh, I would have been six or seven, um, he was teaching me to cast a fly. He was not terribly knowledgeable himself. But as soon as I started floating dry flies down streams and watching trout come up to eat them, I was hooked. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I started doing more and more fly fishing and less and less conventional tackle fishing. I guess I, I didn't become a true purist probably until I was college age. But, uh, and when I say purist, I'm not uh, implying any note of snobbery at all. I don't care what other people do, but I don't fish with anything but flies now, uh, no matter what the quarry, whether it's, uh, you know, bonefish or halibut or uh, I fish with everything for flies. And uh, so I can remember standing uh, beside these little streams in upstate New York and casting, you know, Royal Coachman up into the head of the current and seeing, uh, these uh, brook or brown trout come up and smack them. And I, I was hooked. I was hooked deeper than the fish were. Well, that's super neat. And, you know, obviously your dad had a big impact on you early on in your fly fishing career. But who are some of the folks that have mentored you along your fly fishing journey and what have they taught you? Well, you know, that's interesting because back then in the 50s, there weren't any mentors. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's just so different from uh, the way it is now. There were no fishing shows. Of course, there was no internet. Uh, um, I, I, I read some of the general purpose uh, outdoor magazines. I don't think fly, fly fishermen hadn't even launched yet. Um, so the resources were limited. Uh, we had a copy of Ray Bergman's classic Trout, and uh, I, I read a lot on that in, uh, in Cooperstown, the man who ran the florist shop uh, was a very accomplished fly tire. And I would go down and uh, watch him tie flies. I, I learned a lot from him. I started tying my own flies at a very early age. Again, I was probably eight or something like that. And uh, every once in a while when I'm digging through my pile of crap, <laughs> I, I find an old fly that I tied, you know, 60 years ago. And, uh, and it's kind of nice to take one out every once in a while and catch a fish with it. Things weren't very sophisticated then, you know. We had bivisibles and parmachini bells, and uh, but in a lot of ways, it was a, a more innocent time. Um, uh, it just wasn't as well organized, or, or perhaps over organized, as it is today. 
Got it. And, you know, it's interesting, too. There are those of us who are that pre-internet vintage, and it was literally, you know, library books. There were a few magazines. And if you were lucky enough to find somebody in your community that could point you in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, I, I uh, kept an eye out for opportunities to learn. When we moved to Seattle, of course, we started fishing for steelhead. And uh, I didn't know anything about fly fishing for steelhead. I fished some with conventional tackle for steelhead and actually got quite good at that but i used to float a section of the skycomish river uh, in a riverboat uh, very regularly and there was one angler there uh, who fished with flies and i never knew his name but i would politely pull out upstream and watch him go uh, just walk down the bank and watch what he was doing and uh, he would explain some things to me that was the first time I ever saw anyone fly fishing for steelhead. And um, in my own quiet way, I think I learned quite a bit from him. Uh, the first thing I learned is that you could actually do it. <laughs> because at that time, nobody in Washington fly fished for steelhead. That's not quite true, actually. There was a pediatrician at the University of Washington named Nate Smith, who was one of the, the real pioneers of um, steelhead fly fishing in Washington State. And I, I did know him through medical connections. And uh, he taught me some things, too. But, you know, um, the idea of going uh, down to one of those rivers in a drift boat, you might see 100 anglers. None of them would be fly fishing. It just wasn't done then. And uh, I think maybe that's a good illustration of how much the fly fishing world has changed in the last 50, 60 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you're you're sort of a universal sportsman and uh, you're a wing shooting enthusiast. When did wing shooting become a part of your sporting life? It started early on, um, for sure. Again, uh, my father is an excellent wing shot, probably the best I've ever seen. And he's also an excellent teacher. And uh, the ability to do something and the ability to teach others how to do it don't always correlate, as you as you know. But he was a wonderful teacher. And uh, we were living in Cooperstown, New York at the time, a small rural community, uh, home of baseball, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a local skeet range. Um, this was in the days before sporting clays. And uh, we would go out every Sunday and shoot skeet. And by the time I was seven or eight, uh, I was routinely beating all the men uh, at the skeet range. I, I don't know. It's just. Uh, I didn't have a natural talent in a lot of athletic fields, but I did at this one combined with a, a great coach. Um, I, I got good at it very early and, uh, you know, would roll off 50 straight at skeet range or something when I was seven or eight. And I, I did it with uh, a 12 gauge because we didn't have anything else. And uh, a lot of people said, you know, they say, what's that little kid doing up there with that 12 gauge? Well, that's what we had and that's what I shot. And uh, I never remember uh, being bothered by recoil, uh, even though I was just a little kid. When did that translate into from busting clays to busting birds? We had some fairly good wing shooting there, uh, predominantly for rough grouse and woodcock and waterfowl. And uh, my dad was good at that, and I would follow him around for a while. And according to the state of New York, I... (laughs) I assume the statute of limitations is expired now. Uh, I couldn't hunt until I was 12, and then I could only hunt with uh, an adult. 
But by the time I was 10, my dad said, look, you're ready. And uh, we would set off with one gun between us. And as soon as we were away from the road, he had the gun. So I guess I was shooting grouse uh, at Woodcock about the time I was 10 years old. And uh, interestingly enough, the first day we did that, I killed the first two grouse I shot at. And uh, my dad and his friends were kind of kidding me and saying, you ought to quit right now because that will never happen again. I think it probably took me three boxes of shells to shoot my third one. But uh, it was very, very challenging, as you know, if you've done any rough grouse hunting. And uh, I, I love the upland hunting. Uh, I really love the duck hunting. And our duck hunting wasn't very good by the standards I've, I've enjoyed since then. But I was just fascinated by the fact that you could sit next to a beaver pond and, you know, maybe some teal or a black duck would come in. We also had a great gun dog then. And uh, that really influenced my life uh, in a lot of ways. Um, <clears throat> my dad grew up with dogs, but they were hounds. And he'd never had a bird dog uh, before. And a friend of his raised uh, short hairs. And he kind of, <clears throat> he had a litter. And there was this sort of run of the litter that he gave us. Um, which, and interestingly, that dog went on to beat his dogs in field trials regularly. Uh, the dog was just spectacular uh, at everything, both pointing and retrieving. And, uh, you know, I, as I got a little bit older and we lived out in the country, I would just take off with that dog pit, and, uh, you know, walk around uh, the, the woodlot and so on, shooting grouse and woodcock. Uh, and it was great. Those are great times. It's funny. Uh, when you're a kid, you know, you don't need anything can be an adventure. Uh, and I compare those hunting experiences to what I've enjoyed as an adult in Montana and Alaska. Uh, you know, they, they weren't world-class by any means, but boy, when you're a kid and you've got a good dog and uh, good companionship and a, a good teacher, it doesn't get any better than that. I don't think I've ever enjoyed hunting more than I did then. Yeah, that's really neat. So it sounds like dogs were really kind of always a part of your life then. Yes, they were. And uh, of course they are now, and I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, I basically always had, uh, a gun dog or two of one type or another. Um, I, I enjoy dogs. Uh, I enjoy training them. Um, I enjoy their company. And I've never sent a dog to a trainer, not because trainers don't, not because I think I know everything that a professional trainer knows, but because in most areas of the outdoors, I would rather do it myself make my own mistakes and learn from them rather than having somebody else do it for me. And uh, I've learned some things about training dogs over the years. I don't, again, I don't pretend to be a professional expert, but when you've had as many dogs as I have and spent as much time walking around the field with them, uh, you know, you're bound to, to learn something about the subject. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you have a favorite breed? You know, I, I have had, I'm trying to run through the list here over the years. Um, short hairs, wire hairs, English pointers, Britneys, uh, labs. And uh, when I was hunting cougars here, I had blue ticks and uh, treeing walkers. I mean, I've had uh, just about every sporting breed uh, of dog you have. Um, well, I guess I asked the name a favorite, and I've had 
some excellent dogs from all of those breeds. Uh, right now, I have two labs and two German wire hairs, and uh, I love both those breeds. And um, I will probably not have a, a, a dog from another breed besides those two in the remainder of my life. I'm very, very happy with my channel right now. Got it. And do you have a favorite wing shooting quarry? You know, that's a really interesting story. Um, yes, I have a couple. And uh, I think the reason I like them is because they're challenging and difficult. And also because they offer uh, uh, good opportunities for a dog to showcase its talents. Uh, I enjoy hunting chucker, which I did a lot of when I was growing up in Washington. And I enjoy hunting Mern's quail in the desert southwest. And the two have some things in common. The terrain is rugged, so you have to stay in shape, which is uh, getting harder and harder as I get older and older. Uh, and the shooting is difficult because of uh, erratic flight patterns and, in the case of Mern's quail, obstructions. Uh, people don't think of that, but Mern's quail live in a live oak uh, habitat. And it's a lot like hunting... Uh, rough grouse except the hills are a lot steeper <laughs> so if i had to name two i'd name those two i also enjoy ptarmigan just because i i love the places where ptarmigan live they're they're not the most challenging uh bird on the wing but um, uh, almost everywhere where i've ever hunted ptarmigan has been a spectacular wild corner of alaska and i i just love the terrain and the habitat yeah and you've got a great article i guess it's uh it won't be the most recent article soon, but it's in the most recent Upland article of Strong about your quail hunting in Arizona. Yes, uh, yes, I do remember that. I uh, Well, it's very interesting. Montana winters can be uh, brutal, although I've never had a problem with winter. And some years ago, uh, a friend of mine who was a friend from Alaska actually wound up uh, spending his winters in southern Arizona. And he asked me to come down and hunt quail with him. He's an excellent uh, hunter and excellent dog. And I enjoyed that so much that we wound up buying a house in uh, southern Arizona. Um, and so we would spend, oh, from about now until uh, early April down there. And, uh, you know, you can't really get good at any one thing in the outdoors unless you live where it takes place. Um, yeah, there's just a uh, qualitative increase uh, in your knowledge base uh, when you're actually doing something every day and, and seeing the game and the train under a, a whole variety of conditions. And I, I really got absorbed by merch quail hunting. Um, and then the merch quail numbers started crashing, which they have done before, and nobody's uh, sure quite why. The hunting wasn't nearly as good, and there was a big uh, mine going in next to the little town where we lived. That was kind of changing the character of the town. So we wound up selling that place. Although I, I, I probably will get back down there for a couple of weeks uh, every winter still, uh, just because I love the, the Merns quail hunting so much. And they're a great, great quarry for a pointing dog. If you don't have a good dog, you're probably not even going to see one, let alone shoot it. And uh, when you've got a dog that's had some experience with Mern's quail, it's really a, a delight to hunt with them. Yeah, it's funny, too, because I remember from that article, uh, you were expressing your reluctance to go to GPS trackers on your dogs and that you were a, a brass bell guy. And I think that's kind of an overarching thing for you. You're a very traditionalist on the gear front. Where did that come from? 
Well, I think that, uh, that's kind of a complex question. I, I think I would circle back to the bow hunting world. Um, my dad was not a bow hunter, so I didn't really do much bow hunting when I was a kid, but I was always fascinated by bows and arrows. And I would go make my own bows, you know, out of a piece of string and a, and a sapling. So I was always interested in archery. And then uh, the, about the time we moved to Montana in the early 1970s, uh, uh, there were a lot of good bow hunting opportunities here, and I started to pick it up. And bow hunting is a corner of the outdoors where technology has really, really impacted um, the fundamental nature of the sport. Um, you know, for years, uh, if you go back and read the works of the early pioneers in American bow hunting revival, uh, you know, from Fred Bear to Pope and Young and uh, Pearson and all these people, they were all hunting with traditional bows, either recurves or longbows. And then the compound bow came along um, sometime in the 60s, and that sort of heralded this huge uh, change in the amount of technology that came to bear in bow hunting. And all of a sudden, people had uh, range finders, and they had sights on their bows, and uh, all kinds of things. Uh, you know, a modern compound uh, really bears very little resemblance to a traditional bow. And I realized that, uh, you know, I couldn't shoot at the distances that a good compound shooter could shoot, but I, I didn't want to because the challenge of bow hunting to me has always been about getting close, close, close to a very big game animal. So I hunt exclusively with uh, long bows and recurves, and that's become kind of an issue, I suppose, uh, in the bow hunting community now. Those of us who call ourselves traditional bow hunters, I think, you know, we can get a little snobbish sometimes, but I still feel that that's where bow hunting really lies. And you can translate that basic issue to other areas of the outdoors uh, as well. Certainly uh, the fly rods that we use now uh, <laughs> are, are not the fly rods I was using in the 1950s. Although I have to admit, I don't fish with bamboo much. I have one bamboo rod, but I, I tend to fish with graphite. But um, I, I don't think I could have done what I do in salt water now uh, with the fiberglass rods that I was fishing with as a kid. Um, wing shooting, maybe not so much. Uh, the colors on the dogs is an interesting thing. Um, you know, Cougar hunting can be either really uh, admirable or really not admirable. And, uh, you know, the way it's done so often, uh, particularly on guided hunts here in Montana, is to guide the client, sit in the cafe and drink coffee while he's got kids running up the back road looking for tracks. And uh, they find a track, they turn the dog loose, the dog has a collar, that will not only give its location, but can actually tell when the cat is treed, when the dog goes from horizontal to vertical, that changes the, you know, the, the tone on the receiver. So, you know, the dog is treed, you can get out your uh, digital map, see exactly where it is, see the best way to get there, drive in a snow machine and shoot the cat. And <laughs> you, you can kill a cat that way without, knowing anything about mountain lions without doing any of the aspects of mountain lion hunting that appealed to me, which was number one, staying in shape over the winter 
because a lion chase can turn into a real marathon very easily. And uh, you became a, a tracker. You had to because that's the way you, you kept track of uh, literally uh, what the cat, the dogs were doing. So uh, I, I kind of balked at um, locator collars back then for that reason. Um, I, I do use simple locator collars some on my pointing dogs who are, who are hunting heavy cover. Um, just so I can keep um, uh, some idea. I, I never even graduated to the GPS type uh, dog collar, uh, just uh, something that beeps so I can hear them and tell where they are. But I guess you can draw these lines uh, in a lot of different places and in a lot of different ways. And I'm, I'm not pretending that the way I drew them is the way everybody should draw them. But I, I have been aware of the potential impacts of too much technology on basically all aspects of outdoor hunting and fishing. Yeah, it's certainly, um, I guess the easiest and hardest way to say it is it changes our relationship to the outdoor world pretty dramatically. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, in the hunting world, I mean, I enjoy going and shooting a limited sharp tails or shooting a big elk with my bow, but Honestly, uh, the, the killing the animal really is of secondary importance to me. I look at a bow or a shotgun or a fly rod basically as an excuse to be outdoors and learning. Um, I try to learn something every time I'm walking in the woods, you know, uh, about the animals, what they're doing, the habitat. Um, I, I enjoy all aspects of natural history. I've had a life list of birds since I was three years old and, um, so on and so on. I mean, I, I'm just always looking at things out there. And uh, if, if you take away the challenge of needing to do that, I, for me, you've taken away a lot of the motivation for uh, hunting in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting. As you say that, it reminds me I'm incredibly fond of fishing the fire hole in the fall. Um, and it, to me, it's this, you know, you're literally watching the world go to sleep. And, yep. um, you know, the snow is falling if you're there in September and October and you've got the bison migrations and, um, you know, it's not that the fish are huge, but there's something very, um, relaxing about swinging soft tackles, waiting for the Miller caddis or the blue winged olive hatch, um, you know, during the day. Yeah. And, uh, that's a classical example. I mean, when you're standing at the fire hole, hey, you are in the fire hole. There's no place else you could be. You can take one flash exposure of whatever you're looking at and know you are standing in the fire hole. And fall is definitely the time to do Yellowstone because most of the tourists are gone. And interestingly enough, um, despite all the time I've spent with dangerous wild animals, I've only really almost gotten in trouble twice. And one of them, believe it or not, was a cow elk on the fire hole. And uh, our son had just been born, and my first wife and I were there and uh, fishing the fire hole kind of casually. And I, I noticed this elk uh, 300 yards downstream across the river, and I could tell she had a young calf with her. And, you know, I, I made note of it. I didn't go down that way. And the next thing I knew, this elk was sloshing across the river. Again, this is 300 yards away. And she winds up in my face charging me with hooves flailing and all kinds of things. And we had this newborn baby with us. Fortunately, I had one of my labs with us on a leash. 
and uh, don't tell the park service. But I told my wife, let the dog off the leash or we're going to have trouble with this baby. And uh, so there I was in the fire hole, all the dangerous places I've been, uh, almost getting stomped by a cow elk. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it's amazing what happens when you least expect it. And, you know, one of the interesting things, right, is given your breadth of sporting experience, you know, I, I feel pretty comfortable there's a pretty definite seasonal arc to your sporting life. What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's complicated. I uh, one, At one time, I sat down and figured that I, I actually have killed a big game animal with a bow at all 12 months of the year. Uh, and, of course, it's not just about bow hunting. Um, I wrote a book once called To All Things a Season, which was uh, basically answering just the question uh, you've asked. I started in January and went right through the year, just kind of chronicling and, you know, not in uh, hard, boring facts, but the feel of what I was doing during every month of the year. Actually, that was one of my favorite books. Uh, But uh, in January, uh, there's still some waterfowl hunting available which can be very good here in Montana when everything else freezes hard. Uh, some of these little spring-fed sloughs stay open. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. And uh, in the Pacific Flyway, uh, where I still do a lot of duck hunting because of uh, some property I inherited from my family, uh, you know, the season runs almost to the end of January. And when I lived in Alaska, we would always make a trip to Kodiak uh, in January to uh, hunt ducks and hunt uh, black-tailed deer and put some halibut in the freezer. So that was January. February is kind of a tough one, um, although uh, now I usually go to Hawaii. We, we traded our Arizona place for a place in Hawaii, and uh, I can hunt uh, axis deer and fish the ocean there in uh, February and March. April is turkey time. I love hunting spring turkeys with my bow it's uh it's very very challenging as you can imagine I have a lot of turkeys actually laying around their house so i usually spend most of april hunting turkeys um uh, may traditionally was uh, time to hunt spring bear uh, in alaska and uh here in montana to some degree uh, although the bear hunting was a lot better in alaska and of course by may um hatches are starting and uh, before the first little pulse of runoff, what we call the lowland runoff, before that clouds up the water, uh, fly fishing for trout right around our home can be very, very good in uh, late April and May. And by June, uh, I'm either fly fishing locally. Uh, I almost always go back to Alaska uh, in June to uh, fish for king salmon with friends. Um, and for, for years, I went to Africa almost every summer. I did that, I don't know, 14, 15 times, uh, which is a wonderful experience in its own. And then, uh, the season for, uh, sharp-tailed grouse and Hungarian partridge opens on September 1st in Montana. So all of a sudden I'm back to wing shooting again, and that sort of consumes me for the next several months. Pheasant season usually opens in October. Archery season opens in September, and, um, you know, that used to be the time when you know, the elk are bugling, and I spent a lot of time bow hunting elk. I haven't done as much of that in the last few years for a, for a variety of reasons, but uh, September is a very busy month here, and the fishing is excellent, too, in September. So uh, I've always said I wish there were 12 Septembers every year. Um, 
And by November, the whitetail rut is starting, uh, which is a magical time to be in the woods with a bow. Uh, upland hunting is still good. Seasons run all the way through the end of December in Montana. And then December, mountain lion season uh, usually opens on the 1st of December. And I don't have hounds anymore. I've, I've gotten away for that. But for years, that was a way that I, uh, I stayed occupied during the winter months. So uh, that's a lot. That's a, that <laughs> that's is a lot, lot of time outdoors, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I suspect you still want to hunt and fish more like so many of us. And, you know, you've been really fortunate to balance uh, your medical career uh, with your outdoor life. And, you know, I know so many people that are trying to kind of get their professional life to dovetail with what they want to do outdoors. Do you have any suggestions or any tips for people about how to think about or do things? You know, I, uh, I get asked about that a lot um, because, uh, you know, at, at one point I was really a prolific writer. I had 20 books at some point. I'm sort of out of that now. But uh, I think the first thing is to organize your priorities. And uh, particularly when you're in a profession like medicine, uh, money can be a temptation. Money was not going to be a motivator for me uh, as long as I had enough money to buy shotgun shells and arrows, I, I was happy. And uh, I'm fortunate enough now to be married to a woman who shares that point of view. And because I re- wasn't really cared much about money, I could kind of go wherever I wanted to, which is how I got to live in rural Montana and Alaska for all these years. And there's no substitute for living right next to what it is that you want to be doing in the outdoors. And, you know, I've had a lot of other physicians and other professional people ask me, well, how did you do that? How do, how do you do that? And I sort of just do it. You know, Allen Ginsberg, um, the poet, was uh, undergoing analysis by a psychiatrist uh, from San Francisco. And this would have been in the 1950s. And Ginsberg was very conflicted at that time. And he told his psychiatrist, you know, all I really want to do is I just want to write poetry. And his psychiatrist said to him, Alan, why don't you do that? <laughs> you know, it's an amazingly simple solution to the problem. Uh, if you decide, if you decide that's what you want to do, um, you, 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 you can do it. Uh, you, you can't simultaneously rise to the top of a complicated profession and become uh, uh, an accomplished outdoorsman, but it's not that hard to find a balance between the two. And I enjoyed the practice of medicine. I mean, I, I took it very seriously. Uh, I worked a lot harder at it than a lot of young physicians do today because uh, things are set up differently now. But it can be done. You just need to organize your priorities. Um, and I suppose if I'd organized my priorities differently, uh, I'd be a lot wealthier and maybe have some academic standing in medicine, but I just decided uh, I was more interested in other things. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And speaking of Allen Ginsberg and writers, you're an absolutely prolific writer. When did you get the writing bug? Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, I always sort of enjoyed writing. I mean, all the way back to high school and so on. And uh, some people, some teachers encouraged me a lot. Uh, my undergraduate degree is actually in English from Berkeley, 
uh, even though I, I went on to medical school. And I, um, gosh, I always sort of nibbled around the edges of it, you know, wrote letters to the editor and things like that. Um, and in 1980, early 1980s, I wrote my first magazine article and submitted it to Bow Hunter Magazine. It was an article about caribou hunting with a bow. And uh, uh, M.R. James took it and uh, encouraged me some more. And then I realized uh, that I, I did a lot of things in the outdoors besides bow hunting. So uh, I started branching out uh, and started writing about dogs and fly fishing and wing shooting and everything else. And by, oh, I guess by the early 90s, I was doing 60 or 70 features uh, uh, a year and writing books. I think my first books came out in 1992, I believe. The first one was called Longbows in the Far North. It was published by Stack Cole. And it sold a lot for a hunting book. I mean, I sold 10,000 copies or something before it went out of print. And uh, I found that I, I enjoyed writing books and I enjoyed writing magazine articles. I have a lot of friends who are writers, you know, <laughs> it's funny. We're all kind of a, like a bunch of little old ladies. We all know everybody's business. And then some of my writing friends, frankly, find it difficult. It's work. They have to grind out every word. It's kind of like pulling teeth to get a 2000 word article done. It's just never been that way for me. I enjoy the English language. I, uh, I still read avidly. And uh, there's nothing I'd rather do than develop a good story in my head and sit down and, and translate those ideas onto the printed page. I, I just find that uh, to be extremely enjoyable. Yeah. And so do you like to write a little bit every day or do you just kind of, once you've kind of got that um, framework in your mind, you sit down and knock it out? I do a lot of writing in my head when I'm, when I'm out uh, hunting and fishing, I'm, I'm always thinking about how could I tell this story in a fresh new way? I mean, you know, I'm not much of a 10 hot tips to help you bag your buck this year. I don't do a lot of that. Um, so I'm always kind of compiling things in my head and I'm pretty disciplined. I, I write almost every morning for an hour or two, um, more like two if I've got a book project going, but, uh, it's just part of my day. Uh, I, I don't write at all out in the field. I don't even take notes. Uh, sometimes I'll scroll down a name or some specific thing like that, but it's all sort of going on between my ears um, all the time I'm, I'm outside. And uh, I find it uh, really not all that difficult to get the mental picture onto the computer. Um, I don't know what people did before computers. <laughs> well, I did. Because you did it. Yeah, I did it. I, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how it gets booked before computers. Oh, my God. What, what a hassle that would be. Um so, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say, it's not like I look at a clock and say, okay, I'm going to write from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock, but I write almost every day, almost always in the morning, first cup of coffee, have a bagel, do the New York Times crossword puzzle, and then, and then uh, write for a couple of hours, and it, it just uh, sort of helps glue my day together. 
Yeah. And do you have certain authors that you like to read uh, and follow, or do you just kind of um, do your own thing? Well, I read a lot. And I guess that goes back to my uh, days of English at, at Berkeley. Curiously enough, I don't read a lot of the outdoor stuff because I'm immersed in it all the time. Um, and for my recreational reading, I mean, I, I'm more likely to read Shakespeare. I, I mean, I reread Homer every year. And, um, and I'm not trying to sound like a, a snob. I do read contemporary fiction. Um, in the outdoor field, you know, a lot of outdoor writing isn't very good. There are some people who do it very well, uh, and I admire them. Um, I like Tom McGuane is just excellent. Uh, and there, there are others, some younger people like Reed Bryant. Uh, and when I see one of their names in a magazine, uh, I read it. I don't read every magazine. Co- well, I, I read traditional ma- bowhunter cover to cover because I have to edit it. Everything, <laughs> everything between the covers is passed, uh, between my, before my eyes, before it goes to press. But, and, you know, speaking of, of strong, um, you know, one of the, I felt uh, an accomplishment in my own career was when I finally got a story published in Gray's and I've written regularly for Gray's for, for years now. And I, I think Gray's always sort of set the standard, uh, for the out, outdoor writing. I'll call it that for one of a better term. And, then I, you know, especially in the, the internet age, uh, I really began to get worried because uh, everything seemed to be based on uh, Facebook and YouTube and digital media. And the craft of writing about the outdoors seemed to be kind of fading away. And, you know, we have a great tradition of that in America. I mean, Hemingway is an obvious example. Faulkner wrote amazing uh, hunting stories. And you know, there there were certainly many others along the way, and they were good writers. And uh, I, I sort of saw that end of things getting edged out with more and more emphasis on trophy hunting and uh, more and more emphasis on how-to as opposed to this is what it felt like when I was there. Um, so I was absolutely delighted when I saw Strong and Pale for the first time. Uh, because it seemed to me that uh, these magazines were uh, headed in the same general direction that Gray's had been for 50 years. As a matter of fact, it's Gray's 50th anniversary this year, and I got to get off my butt and write something for them. Um, So that was a a real breath of fresh air. Uh, I'm involved in the magazine business uh, enough with traditional bowhunter to know all too well the problems that print magazines are facing now. And I I just hope that we can keep it together because the tradition of writing about the outdoors is so important, uh, particularly here in America. It it would just be a shame to lose that to tweets and Twitters and all that that stuff, (laughs) which it isn't writing, you know, I don't know what it is, but so I, I sort of imagine, Marvin, that you share that concern. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, you know, um, you know, there's a place for everything, um, I, I think. And so, you know, I'm not against any of it. It's just, I think, um, 
you know, sometimes it, at least for, I guess, people with a little bit more of a more traditional perspective, um, the new tools don't work as well to tell the story. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so kind of jumping a little bit beyond kind of the, um, I guess, the outdoor writing uh, piece of the puzzle, you know, you've been in the field for quite a few years, you know, what changes have you seen, you know, to the industry and, you know, what are your thoughts and concerns about the the future of outdoor sports and our sporting traditions? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, well, <clears throat> from a purely practical standpoint, one of the big changes is that there isn't any money there anymore. Um, you know, I get paid less now for a, a feature article than I did in 1980 um, because uh, advertising appears to be so much more efficient and uh, economically feasible online than uh, through print magazines. And the print magazines just aren't getting the advertiser support that they once had. And I don't really care. I mean, yeah, it's a significant source of income for me, but I won't, I won't starve to death uh, if I never write again or never write about the outdoors again. But it, it, I think it's making it less appealing to younger people who, uh, you know, for, for, for whom payments for writing uh, may be more important in terms of their day-to-day family budget. Um, I, again, I think I alluded to this earlier, but I see uh, just a lot more attention being paid, particularly in the area of big game hunting to trophies and uh, you can define a trophy in a, in a number of ways they've been around well since the beginning of western literature in the iliad but uh i have always tried to de-emphasize that um and i try to de-emphasize that when i'm editing traditional bohar and uh hunters come off a whole lot better in the court of public opinion. And you certainly know this when they're seen as being hunting for meat, uh, as opposed to hunting for horns. And I've shot a lot of big animals and, you know, I, that was enjoyable. I don't have a, a blanket condemnation of that, but I think it's important to establish that that's not the only reason to be there. And interestingly, uh, one of the, one of the bits of good news in the hunter recruitment story is that, we've now become a nation of foodies and there's a lot of young people who are really interested in eating wild game. Uh, and again, I always try to emphasize that aspect of the hunting in the, in the material that I edit and in the material I write. And I think, uh, the idea of eating wild, natural, organic meat, not that I have anything against my many friends in the livestock industry, but, that's that's drawing a lot of people uh, into uh, the hunting circle that I don't think would have been there uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that, you know, with people like April Vokey and others trying to kind of, and I think it's also maybe part, a little bit part of this kind of growth and kind of the maker movement as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I know you've, you've written, I think over 20 books. I know you're the waterfowl editor of strong. You're the editor of traditional, is it traditional bow hunter? Traditional bow hunter. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's the best place if people want to follow your writing to kind of keep track of you? Oh, 
Well, uh, traditional bow hunter, certainly. Now, that has a fairly narrow focus, but not nearly as narrow as it sounds. Um, it's, it's not all just one dead deer after another. Um, we talk, uh, a lot of our material involves wilderness survival skills. We have a regular wild cuisine column now. We have a regular hunting history column. Um, so it, it, that magazine is not nearly as tightly focused as one might think. And I like to think that uh, we have some good contributors now. And I, I like to think that the quality is, is, is there, but certainly the emphasis is a little bit different than it is in a lot of the mainstream uh, big game hunting. Um, I still write regularly for Grays, and I love their editorial standards uh, and will always enjoy writing for Grays. Uh, I write a lot for Village Press, uh, which is uh, Steve Smith and now his son Jake, which do Retriever Journal, Pointing Dog Journal, and just labs about other things. And I, I write regularly for them. I have some, I'm, I'm, I'm a field editor or something like that for Retriever Journal. Uh, regionally, Big Sky Journal, published here in Bozeman, uh, has, has become excellent. You know, Montana <laughs> probably has the highest per capita rate or uh, prevalence of talented outdoor photographers and writers in uh, any state in the country. And uh, it, it's quarterly publication, very high standards. I, I do a lot for them. I used to do a lot of writing about Alaska, but I kind of got disenchanted with Alaska Magazine. No, no need to go into the details here, but uh, so I've sort of stopped writing for them. Uh, uh, shooting Sportsman, uh, which is uh, uh, an excellent wing shooting magazine. Uh, oh, gosh, uh, those are sort of my regulars, I guess. Yeah. Um, I haven't done a book in several years. Uh, books are a lot of work, and you know, it was fun for a while. I, you know, frankly, I sort of uh, feel like I've said what I have to say on that front. I, I missed a really good opportunity, and uh, this, uh, this was just my fault. Uh, I really should have done a book on my father and his career and the Nobel Prize and all of that stuff because it's a fascinating story. And uh, it would have had some outdoor material in it just because that's one of the things he did. And uh, he died several years ago, and I just didn't get around to sitting down with a tape recorder and uh, spending a couple of weeks talking to him. That would have been a very good book. You know, outdoor writers usually don't tend to get much attention unless they're doing something outside of the outdoor field. Uh, Tom McGuane's a good example. Um, and I love writing fiction, and I do. Uh, I, I write Unfortunately, I have limited output or, or, or outlets for it. Uh, I do write fiction for Grays, and I love writing fiction. And part of the problem is I'm old. You know, if I was 25 now, I'd be pounding the streets of New York and talking to agents. And I, I, I'm just too old, too tired. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I wish I had more good outlets for fiction because I, I love writing it. And uh, at least some people think uh, some of what I've right is good um and who knows uh i may tackle some big project yet uh, before i die um i've got a few years left on the odometer i think yeah i i suspect you have some tread left on the tires 
Yeah, a little bit. Oh, it's been a rough few years. I've had a I had to have a brain tumor removed last year, and I've had surgery on my neck and surgery on my shoulder. I've reached the age parts are starting to wear out, but I'm still going. You know. Well, that's the that's the important thing for sure. Yes, it is, and that requires some mental effort uh, at my age. Uh, a couple of the good friends who I've hunted and fished with for years, we're all going through this. You know, we just can't run up the mountain anymore. We can go up, but we've got to go a lot more slowly and, and think a lot more carefully about uh, our survival and our ability to get ourselves out of rough situations. Oh, uh, gosh, we're, we're just not young anymore, Marvin. Yeah, but I also think it counsels to the advice that you gave, which is if, if it's important to you, you should do it. Because if you wait you know, until you're 65 or 70 and retired, you may not be able to do the things that you really wanted to do. You're absolutely right. And, you know, over the years, uh, I've been fortunate enough to get in on the ground floor exploratory aspects of a number of fascinating bits of hunting. Uh, 1990 and 1991, I was in the Soviet Far East um, as, as the Soviet Union was literally falling apart all around us, uh, hunting brown bears with bows and doing things like that. And, then uh, I got involved in uh, guiding uh, bow hunters for buffalo in uh, Australia, northern Australia. Tremendous wilderness, pure wilderness experiences, both of those were. And uh, people would always say, boy, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I said, well, and sign you up. I'll take you next year. Well, you know, next year, my kids in the football team. And, uh, you know, one thing after another. And you can't do those things now. For various reasons the, the window was open and then it closed and uh anytime you get in the business of saying well yeah i'll do that in a few years that's something i'm gonna that's on my bucket list i'll do it before i die and unfortunately that doesn't always work because a lot of the really special outdoor opportunities uh have have a very limited lifespan and if you see a good one uh yeah, put it on your bucket list, but get it done <laughs> within the next year or so, you know? Yeah, I was just getting ready to say, and, you know, Don, uh, before I let you go, I know you're not a big social media guy, um, but I was, <laughs> right, um, and I, I heard your interview with Hal Herring at uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and I certainly, um, I would call you not a Luddite, which is, I think, what you wanted to call yourself. I would just say you're judicious. Um, but if uh, folks want to kind of, keep track of what you're doing in the field and getting in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, email is my preferred means of communication. I, I hate talking on the phone. I think it was, that's because of all those years when I was a physician and uh, I was the only internist uh, in the places I worked. And when somebody was really sick, when that phone rang, you know, I canceled whatever I was going to do for the next week. So I have kind of a visceral aversion to phone. Um, uh, my email address is thomasdon at me.com. That's mikeecho.com. And when people write me, uh, I write back. I, my position has always been if somebody is interested enough to drop me a note about something, uh, sometimes it's for advice, sometimes it's just wanting to visit about some aspect of the outdoors. Um, so that's the best way to get a hold of me. Um, and Lori is, moderately active on social media. Lori is my wife without whom I could not be doing all of the things we've discussed. 
And uh, so you can look for Lori on social media and she'll get it to me. And maybe someday I will break down and acknowledge that uh, I, I, I need to do some social media. Um, and I hate to be cynical, but uh, gosh, I just see so many people wasting so much time on Facebook. And, and uh, again, I, I resent the fact that social media are taking over what the, the writing aspect of uh, portraying life in the outdoors, because I think the writing is important and you're not, you're not going to write uh, anything great on Facebook. It's, it's just not the way the medium works. So, so to answer your question, anybody's welcome to drop me an email at any time. And you can also get a hold of me through uh, the editors of any of those magazines I mentioned. And, you know, they all have websites uh, with readily available contact information. And I hear from a lot of people that way. Um, editors are reluctant to give out my information, which is just courtesy. But they'll, if they hear from somebody, they'll send me the note, and I, I respond. I, I said, I think if somebody is interested enough to try to communicate with me, I'm not going to ignore it. Well, well, listen, Don. I I appreciate you uh, having a cup of coffee or two with me this uh, chilly Montana morning. <laughs> it's just beautiful outdoors right now. I'm looking out my window. There's deer walking along the edge of the forest, but they're safe for this year. Well, Don, thanks again so much for taking the time to chat with me. My pleasure. Anytime. Happy holidays. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everybody.